you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed podcast. I'm Shereen Zink. And I'm Graham Loomer. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation. We're a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community. Because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we meet Lloyd Cardinal, one of the members of this year's Vital Signs Advisory Committee. This year's report delves into topics including the history of racism in Edmonton and the ways that systemic racism affects housing, safety, health, education, civic engagement, and more. Although this report is rich with data, it also reveals that the unique experiences of Black, Indigenous, and people of color are often not considered in research studies. For instance, the report identifies that there is a lack of race-based data within the 2S LGBTQ population, which makes the challenges they face invisible. Our correspondent, Emily Randall Watson, sat down with Lloyd Cardinal to hear about his experience on the committee and to understand his perspective of what this data, or lack of data, can look like in everyday life. The 2022 Vital Signs Report is out, sharing the results of a year-long checkup into how the community is faring. As you may know, each year, the Edmonton Community Foundation works with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to produce this report. Each Vital Signs focuses on an issue that impacts the city. This year, that's systemic racism. Individual issues within this have dug into the history of racism towards Indigenous and people of colour, economics and education, housing and safety, civic engagement and self-governance, and more. A committee of diverse community experts works together to make sure that the right issues are examined. Lloyd Cardinal is a member of this year's Vital Signs Committee. He wears many different hats in the community, including working in education and co-chairing the Indigenous Circle for Unpoverty Edmonton. He also does grassroots community work and advocacy. I'm going to hand it over to Lloyd, and he will introduce himself in the traditional Indigenous way. I'm Cree. I'm Nehiwak. I also have some Sioux ancestry. I come from a place called Wolf Lake, but I also come from the Beaver Lake Cree Nation. I'm both Métis and Treaty. Even though in the government's eyes, you can't be both, right? But I am both. You know, also acknowledging like that there are 48 First Nations in Alberta and three treaties with band offices. The other two are just territories that come into Alberta. But the diversity of Indigenous people in this province, right? Like, we're not all Nehiwak Cree or Sioux. There, there's many different tribes here. And sometimes people think that we're all Cree. And, and we're not. That's one of the things that I always want to express also. Now, you sat on this year's Vital Signs Committee. I'd love to dig in a little bit. Why was it important to you as an Indigenous person living in Edmonton to share your perspective in that way? The reason I wanted to participate in Vital Signs was I was also directed to by my boss. I work for something called the Council of Elders. Originally, it was my boss, who's an elder. Her name is Elder Betty Latender. She was asked originally to sit at the table with vital signs. And I'm an, like an escapios. And in our culture, that actually means like a helper, somebody that helps in ceremony. And I work with elders. 
So the elder asked me to sit there in her place and to participate in the circle. What was that process like for you? I know you've mentioned it was your first time sitting on the committee. How did you find that experience? Well, I found it interesting because I've done a lot of work in community in the past, and there were a lot of people that I already knew sitting at the table participating from many different organizations. For me, it was, I don't know, how would you put it, like refreshing to sit down and to be able to discuss some of these issues and how it's collected and in an urban context, but also from my perspective as an Indigenous person and also a person with lived experience. What were some of your main takeaways from these conversations that you had as you looked at the year as a whole, but then also these individual quite substantial topics? One of the takeaways that I got from this, my concern was about how data collection is done when it comes to Indigenous people. I noticed when I looked at the data that was collected, that the data was old, that the data came from 2015. And when it came to data collection, Indigenous people were in a completely different area when it came to all other ethnicities. So I seen a list of all different ethnicities and Indigenous people weren't even mentioned there. I wondered if it was because of the Indian Act, right? But at the same time, also acknowledging that many Indigenous people in an urban context are disenfranchised and they are disconnected from their bands, their settlements, the places that their people come from. When they're not on their settlements or the reserves and they're in the city, the provincial and federal government do not want the responsibility of paying for them. They'd rather have them stay on the reserves in order to pay for them. And because they're in the city, they are disenfranchised and the reality falls upon the municipality. And when the reality falls upon the municipality, we see a lot of Indigenous people being treated as if they have no rights at all. They get treated like everybody else, but because of treaties, because of agreements, because of like the Métis Nation, because of those histories, they do have rights. But when they're in the city, those rights are not recognized at all. It's so complicated to say. See, this is where it becomes a problem because I cannot speak on behalf of all Indigenous people due to the diversity of Indigenous people. And I would not try to speak on behalf of all other people in a sense, like when it comes to our nations. And there are many Indigenous people in an urban context that are connected to their bands, that are connected to their settlements, that have that. But I personally didn't growing up in the city. We know in the inner city, when you see like the homelessness, most of those people are Indigenous people. And even when I look at the statistics, I don't believe that the statistics are accurate when it comes to the number of First Nations people facing homelessness within an urban context, right? I know people that work within those organizations. I know people that are EDs within those organizations. And one of them told me that he thinks it's 80 to 85% Indigenous that are homeless within the city, that access services from their organizations are not where they come from. They're in the city and they're lost. They're disenfranchised, disconnected from any part of their roots. I experienced that when I was younger, not having identity. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about that in terms of that experience for you? I was living and I grew up in a community that was outside of Edmonton. And where I originally came from was a place called Wolf Lake. And Wolf Lake used to be one of the 12 Métis settlements that were recognized here in Alberta. Alberta is the only province that recognizes land-based Métis. And because of that, May 6, 1960, the lands and the rights were rescinded on the people and the people were forced off of the land that day. Now, my grandfather at the time said no to the government and he bought his fenced quarter section of land, which was very close to the lake. They also had uh, trap lines that were north of the lake, which were six miles by six miles, a township. They were crown agreements. They couldn't take those from them. But that day, the people were told to take what they could. They couldn't take everything. And they were asked to leave that day. Some of my family members went to Onion Lake. Some of my family members went to the Satellite Cree Nation. Some of my family members went to East Prairie. This is part of the reason I have family members all over the place that I don't know. Because they were displaced that day and forced off the land. And it was due to resources. My great-grandfather was a treaty Indian, and he was from the Piasis Band, and he signed something called Scrip, but Scrip with a P, not with an E at the end of it. It's Scrip. And when he signed Scrip, he gave up his treaty rights. And when he gave up his treaty rights, he instantly became a Métis, and they were promised the Wolf Lake Métis settlement. From my understanding at that time, they got rid of about 30 bands at the beginning of 1900s. This is why we're in the city and not in Wolf Lake. This is why we're urban is because where we originally came from was taken from us. And see, people went to other First Nations and other places, but guess what? Not everybody has those places to go, right? So they end up in the city disconnected from their homes because either their homes were taken or they just don't have that relationship. They don't know their community. They don't know their family members. We're very communal people and we're used to being tight-knit and close. And when you come into the city, it's a completely different world. So for me, my experience was not having a place to go back home and ending up in the city because of that. And, you know, at the same time, not being recognized as Métis or Treaty. I'm currently reclaiming my Treaty status, and I'm 42 years old. You talked about the importance of, you know, reflecting on these issues and how they relate to the data that you were going through. Can you speak a little bit more about why it's so problematic that the data doesn't necessarily reflect the truth? of what our city really looks like or what the true depth of some of these challenges really are. A lot of the difficulty comes from the government. And I'm not saying this like in an anti-government kind of a way, but I'm saying that a system called the Indian Act decides if you are Indian or you're not Indian. We also have to look into the history and the impacts of Indian residential schools where their names were even changed. Because their names were changed, they lost connections to their families, to their bands, their original history. You go back in history, 
And what did the prime minister say, Sir John A. Macdonald, to kill the Indian and the child? You know, and then they say something else, like it's almost like they want to put the Indian back in the child. So many indigenous people that are in the city don't have a connection to their roots, you know, their settlements, to their bands, their histories, and they live an urban life, which is a huge disconnection from who they truly are. In my circumstance, the settlement that I originally came from being taken away in 1960 and then people being displaced and spread out all over the place caused me to not know who I am for a time because I didn't even know my own family. And you know what? Another thing that I faced as a challenge was learning who my grandmother was when I never met her, right? I never knew both my grandmothers. And at the same time, learning that I had uh, this indigenous like history, these roots, but at the same time, not being able to really connect with it in a city because you're not with your people. But I do want to say this. I was raised by my grandfather out in Wolf Lake for a time in my life, probably about 10 years. And I hunted and I trapped and I lived off the land. And I connected with ceremony and I connected with our traditional way of life. And you know what? I was blessed because of that, to have that connection. But yet there are many indigenous people that had no connection to that. And they're in the city or they either had it when they were young, but being in the city, they don't have it anymore. So, you know, the challenges is too, is also proving to the government that you're an indigenous person. So there definitely is an identity crisis taking place. But like I said, not for all Indigenous people, because some Indigenous people have those connections. I've even met indifference when I've met other Indigenous people, because sometimes they question, why don't you have your language? Why don't you have all of these things? Yet they don't know your history because they've never experienced it. The identity crisis that you're talking about how much do the various topics that were explored through Vital Signs this year, employment, education, civic engagement, income, housing, and more, how much are those connected to this identity crisis when it comes to how Indigenous people are impacted and live every day in Edmonton? One of the things that, like when I say identity, and this is going back to Indian residential schools, like they tried to take away our language. They tried to take away our culture. They tried to take away anything that was indigenous about us. And they tried to assimilate us into Canada. Now, many indigenous youth that are urban do not know their roots. Some of them don't even know that they're First Nations people and that they come from treaties, that they come from agreements. And see, I work with a lot of Indigenous youth, and one of the biggest things that I worked on with them within education was identity. So like in our way, we say, and that means like, where do you come from? And if you ever go and you sit with Indigenous people, that's what they're going to ask you, right? They're not going to ask you your job or your title. They're not going to ask you about your degrees. They're going to ask you, who are you? And where do you come from? This is how we know each other as Indigenous people. And when I used to go into classroom settings, 
I would go into a classroom that was 90, if not 98 to 100 percent indigenous, and I would ask that question, who are you and where you're from? And guess what? They couldn't answer me at first. They didn't know where they came from. And I know kids also, like they learn what you teach them, right? But it also didn't seem like it was really important for a lot of them. I had to explain the importance and also had to explain one day you're going to run into your family. You're going to be somewhere. You're going to be at a ceremony. You're going to be at a like a wake, like a funeral gathering. You're going to be at a powwow. You're going to be somewhere. And when you get asked this question by the people, you, you're going to need to be able to answer them. When I first brought this question up to the children, they couldn't tell me. And one of the first things I remember telling the children is that, do you guys know that you're First Nations? And when I said that to them, I said that you are the first peoples of this land, that your ancestors have lived on this land for thousands of years, like since time immemorial. And then, you know what? Because of that, you come from treaties agreements that were made between our people and the crown and you know at like when i expressed this to them they all started like smiling and looking at each other and it made them proud to be indigenous which is important and, and you know i don't say this just for indigenous people all people need to be proud of who they are all people need to be proud of their identity all people need to be proud of their roots and their history their ancestors that came before them because of their ancestors, they are, right? Working with the kids, many of the kids, I'd ask them their first and their last name, and they would tell me their first and last name. And by their last names, I could tell what like band or area or territory they came from. And it was kind of funny because they thought I was a psychic, right? But it wasn't that I was a psychic. It was just that I was raised in the indigenous way. And this is how we know each other. I would tell them their reservations or their settlements. And if they couldn't tell me where they were from and I couldn't figure it out, I would ask them to go home to ask their parents, to ask even if they had foster parents, to ask their cookum, their musum, right? And to come and share it with me. And so we worked on this identity. And it was really interesting after the classroom would learn who they were and where they were from. because. Through that, the room, the classroom became a different place because there were so many different bands, so many different treaties, so many different histories. One of uh, the young kids that we worked with learned that his great-grandfather was a great chief named Almighty Voice. Some of them learned that they had really complex Indigenous histories, right? So like, for me, it was interesting, like after six months, you know, like walking down the hallway and then, you know, you run into an Indigenous student and he says to you, hey, Mr. Cardinal, I know where I'm from now. He'd tell me where he was from. And, you know, like that was just so good to hear because identity connects us to the land that we're standing on and identity connects us to our people, our ceremonies, our culture. I always express it like, it's like the roots of the tree that grow deep into the ground. How will a kid know where he's going? Like if he doesn't know where he came from, right? And also too, how will he know his rights? If nobody tells him, he has to be taught about those rights. So like in the history here in this country, they were very successful in a lot of ways at wiping out that culture and that identity. 
But at the same time now, there's a shift that's taking place and we are working to restore that. And there are many people all over what I would call Great Turtle Island that are doing this work. I call it like reclaiming, in a sense, like our culture, our identity, but also like reclaiming our roots. Can you talk a little bit about the interconnected element of these topics and why that's important to remember? I think that like with Indigenous people in an urban context, that Indigenous people are not necessarily safe in the city and that they're overly represented in all the areas that were mentioned within those topics, like when it comes to, you know, incarceration, when it comes to homelessness, when it comes to children in care, like you can go on and on about the overrepresentation of Indigenous people within these systems. Everything impacts everything. You know, with Indigenous people, we're also underrepresented in many areas. So like I even heard it stated by an MLA a few years back that that was his statement that he had made to the media and the press, that Indigenous people don't participate in elections. They don't vote. Sometimes that's because they don't believe that they need to vote because some of them are under a chief and council. They are connected to their reservation or their band. But there are many Indigenous people that are beginning to vote. We also see some up-and-coming Indigenous MLAs in our area. Going back to Indigenous people not being allowed to vote until 1960, and before that, they had to give up their treaty status. All of this stuff is interconnected. Like Even just when you think about voting, not voting until 1960, not being allowed to gather in groups of 12 in our city in the 1940s. They didn't want us to organize, right? How far does that put us behind politically, right? When you are not involved and you're not allowed to participate, I think Indigenous people still are working to be involved, to be heard, to participate in their community. And um, in a sense, because of legislation, because of systems that have been put in place from the past, still struggle to participate to this day. With healthcare, there's racism that's being called out Nowadays, within the healthcare system, it's being acknowledged that Indigenous people are treated differently within the healthcare system. The overrepresentation of children across Canada that are in care. I don't want to go into too many, but everything impacts everything when it comes to Indigenous people. So if you see an overrepresentation of Indigenous people in certain areas, like within our systems and policies. That's where people need to learn about that history. And they need to learn as to why that history has taken place because people need to become properly educated on the history of this land and its relationship with Indigenous peoples and in a sense has to evolve. And there are slow shifts that are taking place now. People are learning about that history. But at the same time, these kinds of things take time. How do you think Edmonton as a city and as a community needs to approach inclusion going forward to better reflect some of the things that you've just shared? Well, Edmonton needs to be inclusive of all people. Like Edmonton needs to acknowledge the history of this land and just even where we are right now. This is, you know, a Miskwachiwa sky gun. 
which means like a beaver's lodge, but like beaver hills, that many indigenous nations have been here since time immemorial. And that indigenous people, we do not owe our existence to Canada, that we have been here long before Canada ever existed. And we continue to be here. And, you know, at the same time, I'd like to also acknowledge the many people that have come here to call this place home, that they also understand and acknowledge that Indigenous people have been very welcoming people since the beginning, that we've always been kind, that this is our culture. Edmonton needs to learn about its diversity. And what I mean, too, is that it's not just about infrastructure within the city. It's about what I call social infrastructure. So meaning, like from my understanding, and this was from a few years back, that there were 140 some different cultures in our city and like different languages, customs, traditions. I believe that there needs to be bridge work and community between these different nations so that we can understand ourselves better as a city. Also to honor and acknowledge the many different cultures and the diversities that exist here amongst people. Who do you think should be leading that kind of work? I think it should come from the communities themselves. I think you can have people head the work up, but it should come from the communities that are out there that are already trying to share their cultures. I see a lot of good work happening in our city. I see a reflection of the diversity that exists here, but at the same time, I see it as a responsibility. And and that goes back to the treaties that were originally signed in this territory. Those treaties were based upon peace and friendship, that when we signed those treaties and agreements, that we would live on this land together and like in a sense, share this land and the prosperity of this land in peace and friendship. That was Lloyd Cardinal from the 2022 Vital Signs Committee. When we wrapped up our conversation, Lloyd noted that there's healing in the sharing of these stories and these experiences, that it's important to continue creating safe spaces for people to share and learn so that we can all keep working towards noticeable change. I also want to note for you that while this year's Vital Signs topics do talk about the experience of other marginalized folks, Lloyd strongly believes in the importance of cultures and groups of people speaking for themselves and being given a platform to do so. You can find the Vital Signs Report and individual topics at www.ecfoundation.org initiatives vital signs. They are also available as inserts in Edify magazine. Please do go take a read if you're able. It will provide an expansive look into these issues and you'll be able to read more about what other people living in Edmonton experience as well. I'd like to leave you with some final thoughts from Lloyd as we all grapple with what a more inclusive city could look like. I believe that we live in a beautiful city and I believe that the city is beautiful because of the diversity that exists here. I think if Indigenous people are safe in an urban context, this city will be a better and safer city for all people that call this place their home. The last thing I'll say is that At the end of the day, we're all here. We're all not going anywhere. We might not agree with each other about things. Sometimes we might not even like each other. We might talk bad about each other on social media. But at the end of the day, what do we all want? 
healthy and safe communities for our children to grow up in, free of racism, free of discrimination, free of poverty. And in order to accomplish that, we have to work together. Thank you so much to Emily Rendell Watson for bringing us this story. And thank you to Lloyd Cardinal for sharing his time and his experience with us. Our Vital Science Report is out now. You can find the full report on our website at ecfoundation.org. And we'll have the link in our show notes. You can find a condensed version of the report inside the Edmonton Journal on December 8th. You might remember that we've shared a few spotlights and vital topics throughout the year on the show. And we'll have links to all those episodes too. We'll also have more links to our other great storytelling platforms our well-endowed web show, and the latest on our blog. And don't forget to check out our other upcoming granting deadlines and funding opportunities. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Yeah, thanks. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with everyone you know. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Sharing the show and leaving reviews are the best ways to help new listeners find us. You can also connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Graham Loomer and Shireen Zink. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This episode was edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at BECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well endowed.